1986, at the tail end of my teenage years, I watched a made-for-TV movie called Kate's Secret, starring Meredith Baxter. The movie was a very graphic portrayal of a woman suffering with an eating disorder called bulimia nervosa. It probably wasn't a particularly good movie. This isn't a recommendation that you dig it up and watch it. Surely not her best work. But it had a profound and lasting impact on me. I believe it was the first seed planted in my own recovery from food addiction. I didn't suffer from bulimia, which is uncontrollable binge eating, followed by purging the excess food, usually with self-induced vomiting. I didn't identify with the purging behavior, but I vividly remember feeling it's almost, almost like I have half of that disease. You see, almost every day, I felt like my eating behavior was out of control, like I just couldn't stop. I would often eat to the point of being uncomfortably full and then wait for that feeling to pass to where I was feeling just full, not uncomfortably full, and then I would eat some more. It took its toll on my body and on my spirit. I gained weight steadily and, yes, did my share of yo-yo dieting. I'd lose weight and then gain it all back and then gain some more. My overeating and the size of my body were both deep sources of shame for me. The movie was just a tiny seed that would take about seven years to germinate. But it was the first time I considered the possibility that the fix for what I thought was broken in me might not be the perfect diet. Over that next seven years, the intensity of my overeating escalated. My weight climbed, and so did my shame. And the perfect diet was not to be found, and it was not for lack of trying. I was desperate to find someone to help me. And so I looked in the yellow pages for a counselor. The yellow pages were in this were in the back of this thing called a phone book and were the way we looked up businesses in the olden days before the Internet and search engines. Anyway, there was a counselor whose ad mentioned that she specialized in treating anorexia, bulimia, 
and compulsive overeating. Compulsive overeating. 27 years later, I still remember the feeling I had when I read those words. That was me. There was a name for it. Maybe I would finally find the help I needed. I called that counselor, and I did start seeing her. And through her, learned about food addiction and the 12-step recovery process. I started going to meetings a few times a week, and slowly I began to recover. Yes, I lost weight. But recovery was about so much more than the size of my body. At every, at almost every meeting, we closed with the serenity prayer. Will you say it with me now? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you. I still love hearing a group of people say that prayer aloud. It's been really meaningful to me in my recovery process. You see, the first step of the 12 steps is we admitted we were powerless over, for me, food, that our lives had become unmanageable. The premise is that before you can recover from an addiction, you first have to accept that you have one. Once an addict accepts that she can't change the fact that she has an addiction, she can begin to make changes, to change the things she can. Sounds simple, right? And in my early recovery, I thought it was simple. I imagined a table with two columns, things I cannot change and things I can change. If I prayed to my higher power really, really well, perfectly, then all the things would neatly take their place in one column or another. And I would have a blueprint for the rest of my life. And here's the thing. There is nothing simple about the process of discerning when to accept, and when to change. The wisdom we pray for in the serenity prayer can be very complex and is very personal. I'll share a recent example. I am still in recovery, and it's been years since I've been to a 12-step meeting. I am so grateful for the program that helped me find my path and continues to help many, many people find recovery. One of the reasons I personally stopped going was my growing discomfort with the degree of focus 
on weight loss. There were even debates about something called fat serenity. This idea, this idea held by some that serenity didn't really count if you were judged to still have a significant amount of weight to lose. Yes, I had lost weight in recovery. But my recovery was about so much more than weight loss. Honestly, it really wasn't about weight loss. The thing that I had perceived as broken about me turned out to have nothing to do with the size of my body. Please don't get me wrong. I loved those meetings, and they continue to provide enormous benefit to newcomers and to people who have been coming back for decades. But I did stop going. Like I said, the wisdom to know when to make a change is personal. As the years passed, I started to put on weight. My eating wasn't out of control like it had been, but it had changed. My metabolism also slowed down as I got older, so I'm sure that had an impact as well. I didn't rush to do anything about it. I noticed the discomfort I felt when I looked in the mirror. And I took a breath and practiced self-love and self-acceptance. It wasn't always easy. I remember staring in the mirror, looking myself in the eye, and saying, I love you, Josie. You're beautiful. Not because I believed it, but because I wanted to believe it. I didn't want to do something about my weight out of a sense of vanity. I wanted real serenity. And honestly, I didn't want to tap into that societal view that women had to look a certain way to be okay. There was definitely a tension, though. In terms of the prayer, I sometimes wondered if I was putting my weight in the wrong column. I wasn't powerless. I knew I could change my circumstances with changes to my lifestyle. I did a lot of work over those couple of years to accept and understand and love myself. And I am truly grateful for that opportunity. And I have no regrets. And then something shifted. I'm not sure of all the reasons why, but if I'm honest, Vanity did play a role. I decided it was time for a change. 
and I actively engaged in modifying my eating and my lifestyle in order to lose weight. I felt the tension there, too. Was I abandoning my principles? Was I fat-shaming myself? The weight came off. And it was different this time. I didn't feel like it was a rescue from an out-of-control illness. My eating hadn't been out of control this time. Still, the process was transformational. Yes, I've gotten a lot of compliments on my appearance. Some from people in this room. And I appreciate them. I really kind of like them. But I don't just look different. I feel different, physically and emotionally. I have more confidence today and more peace. So, yeah, I have no regrets about losing the weight either. Like I said, the discerning of wisdom is deeply personal. At each step, I made choices for myself that others might have questioned, that others did question, and that they wouldn't choose for themselves. We all find our own paths. This wisdom is also fluid. Neither path was wrong for me. My needs and my desires just shifted. This is American Buddhist nun Pema Chodron, who Kathy talked about earlier. In describing the source of wisdom at a personal, individual level, she writes, the path is the goal. This path has one very distinct characteristic. It is not prefabricated. It doesn't already exist. The path is the moment-by-moment-by-moment evolution of our experience, thoughts, and emotions. This is actually at the heart of our current message series, Emerging Now, where we're exploring and embracing the inevitability of change and all that is emerging. Pema writes, when we realize that the path is the goal, there's a sense of workability. Everything that occurs in our confused mind, we can regard as the path. Everything is workable. In other words, We have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Wisdom emerges from that place of dissonance. So wisdom is not an end state meant to neatly fill up our columns. The real work of wisdom is in the daily struggle. 
And that struggle doesn't mean we're doing it wrong. It means we're doing it right. Another example that might be more relevant for some of you is the last presidential election. I remember the morning of November 8th, 2016, like it was yesterday. I was filled with so much hope. Not even hope. I was filled with confidence. Remember this? I texted my daughters that morning. It was the first presidential election for both of them. In my text, I wrote something like, Remember this day. Years from now, your grandchildren are going to ask you what you were doing and how you were feeling on this day. We were changing the world that day. Or so I thought. I was heartbroken that night. Even more so the following morning. And in the days and months that followed, I struggled with what to do next. The outcome of the election surely fell in the things I cannot change column. Was I supposed to accept it? Lots of people were organizing marches and posting on social media and generally not accepting this result. Were they wrong? Did they lack serenity? Or was I the one missing the boat, lacking the courage to engage in social justice and create change? If I prayed for serenity, was I complicit in all that was wrong? If I engaged, was I banging my head against a wall? refusing to accept reality. And what if my opinions didn't always fall in lockstep with my activist friends? What should I pray for then? The wisdom to know the difference, complex and personal, and always emerging The wisdom of tomorrow is still uncertain, and it takes work to get comfortable with that uncertainty. To be clear, being comfortable with uncertainty is not the same thing as putting our heads in the sand or staying stuck in confusion and pain. It's just that we have to experience the uncomfortable emotions to get through them. And it is important to move through them. Spiritual teacher Marianne Williamson writes about something she calls impacted emotional pain. Pain can poison our system or leave it. Those are pretty pretty much our only choices. She says sometimes emotional pain is to the soul 
what fever is to the body, a way to burn up what needs to be burned up so that health can return. Whatever energy isn't brought to light, surrendered, and transformed stays in the dark. An insidious force of constant active attack on both body and soul. She also says that it takes courage to endure the sharp pains of discovery. Rather than to choose to take the dull pain of unconsciousness that would last the rest of our lives. So how do we move past those sharp pains of self-discovery? This is Jill Bolte-Taylor. Dr. Taylor is a neuroscientist who about a decade ago gave the first TED Talk that went viral on the Internet about her experience of having a stroke and the powerful insight she gained from that. In her book, My Stroke of Insight, she writes about our ability to choose how we respond to stimulation coming in through our sensory systems at any moment in time. She says it takes less than 90 seconds, once triggered, for an emotion to surge through our body and then be completely flushed out of our bloodstream. This is the part of our response that is automatic, not within our control. She asserts, though, that after 90 seconds, we do have some control over whether and how we continue to feel that negative emotion. I've heard others refer to this as the 90-second rule, this idea that when confronted with an uncomfortable emotion, we can pause, acknowledge the emotion, and then let it pass. A month or so ago, I decided to give it a try. It is hard for me to commit to a daily meditation practice. But 90 seconds, I could commit to pausing and noticing what was happening in my body for 90 freaking seconds. And you know, I found it to be pretty powerful. On one occasion, I was experiencing anxiety about a project at work. The kind of anxiety that often paralyzes me. I stopped, acknowledged the feeling, and paid attention to what was happening in my body. I didn't even have to time it. I could tell when the emotion had run its course. And I felt a little less anxious. Just enough to move forward with my work on the project. When we let ourselves feel a negative emotion, we're no longer controlled by it. Or at least less controlled by it than before. Now, I am not suggesting that 90 seconds of feeling our emotions will cure all ills. 
It isn't a substitute for the real work we sometimes need to do to heal or to figure out what to do next. My own recovery journey and the healing I've experienced as a result has taken decades. And I'm still recovering. And knowing about the 90-second rule wouldn't have changed that. But maybe it would have helped. And the things don't magically fall in place in the columns after 90 seconds any more than they did after saying a prayer. But for me, it has become a tool, a reminder that I have a choice about whether to let my emotions control me. So, here we are in 2018. Again, we're seeing horrific headlines. Again, the country is divided. And again, many of us are in pain, bewildered by the opinions and actions of others. We're struggling with when to engage and when to step back and take care of ourselves. As I seek wisdom, I often choose not to post my opinions on social media. There are a lot of people on my feed who would not be swayed and would actually be turned off by my posts and less likely to listen to what I have to say. And today, I choose to accept that as reality. Who knows? Maybe that position will shift over time, too. In the past, I found myself thinking that others, maybe some of you, who put themselves out there were wrong. Not wrong, maybe misguided. Today, I see the value in each of us following our own path of emerging wisdom. And I truly honor the decisions that you make. And you know what? You may not be changing everyone's views. People may unfriend you, but don't give up. You may not have changed them, but you're changing me. And maybe more than just me. Sometimes you're a kindred spirit. Other times you challenge my views and my views shift. Still other times... I disagree with you and with the way you express your opinions. And you know, it helps me to understand myself and my own path a little better. So thank you. It's not just okay for us to each follow our own path. It's essential. We need one another to each be our own best self so that we can all move forward together. Let's commit to continuing to explore our own discomfort 
as we seek wisdom and to honor the path and the process that each of us takes. I am so grateful for all the ways that my path is crossing with yours, all of yours. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Will you pray with me? Spirit of the universe that unites us all, be with us as we seek to accept the things we cannot change.